<laughs> That's like a, your a Jadakiss laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a new podcast from the bitterly young, delectably hip, and fragrantly lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. Oh, I gotta introduce everyone. Sorry, I got, I got so excited. But that was perfect. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm Olga Segura, here with Zach Davis. Hello, everyone. So um, that intro sounded a little different because Ashley's actually in Rome right now. I know. Did you Did you hear that? Did I hear what? That was the sound of everyone who is a fan of Ashley just tuning out of the podcast. <laughs> but if Ashley is, in fact, the only reason that you listen to this show, stay tuned because she will show up later in the podcast because we recorded the interview section of this uh, a couple weeks ago when Ashley was here. Um, we got a lot going on this week. We're moving from our current office to our next permit. And these are this will be the last time. We've moved twice this year, but this will be the last time. So we're moving Friday. Moving Friday. And, you know, I hear we have a pretty cool studio in the new place, which is very exciting. It is very exciting. If you've been listening for a while and you've, you, and you've enjoyed the sounds of sirens in the background or construction work, mm-hmm. um, I think those are going to be things of the past, theoretically. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so what's on Sapsack? So since we're moving, mm-hmm. we decided to clean out the fridge, right? Because... Yep. No sense buying anything new if mm-hmm. it's all just going to... So we've got uh, some beers from a couple weeks ago. We've got the Sierra Nevada Oktoberfest, which still relevant, still October. So <laughs> uh, cheers to that. Cheers. It, it, yeah. Did we have more or were there only two? It's just two. Like we are literally clearing out all what right, we so have left. I will nurse this one I've got <laughs> until the bitter end. <laughs> Um, and who are we talking to this week? So this week we are talking with Sister Simone Campbell, a uh, celebrity nun, and also the leader of Nuns on the Bus and the executive director of Network. It's a lobby for Catholic social justice. Mm-hmm. And after that, we will be bringing you our consolations and desolations, the part of the show where we talk about where we did or did not find God this week. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news so you guys don't have to. Um, what's first, Zach? Well, it's Halloween this week, and Halloween costumes is a time where we all talk about what's appropriate to wear and what's right. not. Right. Right. So, and I was in the, there's a, one of those Halloween pop-up stores that opens, and I noticed that there was a little section of the store where, like, there are some Catholic costumes where you okay. could dress up as either the Pope or uh, a priest mm-hmm. or a Sexy non-costume. Right. Um, which some sisters are finding pretty problematic. Right. So there's this one sister who claims that when she sees women dress, or just people in general on Halloween dressed as sexy nuns, it's actually kind of insulting. She says, you know, my religious life is something I take very, very seriously. And the same way you wouldn't wear other problematic costumes, you shouldn't wear religious costumes. And, you know, she goes as far as making a comparison to people who wear blackface or stereotypical costumes of other races. Is it the same as maybe someone... Uh, going in blackface or wearing a sombrero and a fake mustache. It's definitely not. I think that when you see people in blackface, it's problematic because you literally have people appropriating like the race and identity of a ho- of another human being, you know. And it's usually someone doing it for for a race that's been marginalized. Part, I mean, part of it is you can choose to be a nun, right? That's a choice that everyone makes. You don't. Mm-hmm. You're not. You don't choose to be black or. Mexican or and so I think there that's an essential difference mm-hmm. that said whether you're thinking about being a 
sexy nun or an unsexy nun, just know that maybe the real nuns of the world may they may not look too kindly upon that. What's our next story, Olga? Zach, do you think you're a good person? Yeah, I would say so. Do? I don't know. Do you think you're a good person? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Uh, the reason we're asking this is because a recent report just came out from the Pew Research Center, which claims that 56% of Americans think that in order to be a good person, you don't have to believe in God. And 49% of U.S. Catholics agree with this. Um, I found this really interesting because for me, as someone who was raised Catholic, who went to Catholic schools, I can't separate my sense of what it means to be good and what it means to be bad from my faith. Um, but of course, I would not hold it. I don't think you have to believe in God to be a good person, but it's so fascinating. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't love this dichotomy. I don't know. Being When I was in college, mm -hmm. when people would find out that I studied both philosophy and theology, or even before that, whenever I was just sort of like vaguely religious in uh, high school, people would always ask me, you know, well, do you think you have to believe in God to be mm -hmm. a good person? And really, they're not actually looking for my opinion. They just want me to say, no, you don't have to, so you're good. Right. Um, you know, what I'm actually, I don't think it's helpful, one, because mm -hmm. I think what's a more interesting question is, uh, what does it mean to be a good person? Mm -hmm. Right? I actually don't think we can agree on that in general. Or what does it mean to believe in God? Is that like a, is that a state of being that's constant? Or do you fade in and out of that? Is there doubt? How does your faith or doubt in God influence your morality. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but you can't really get into that if you're a random pollster calling random phone numbers, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> Though some people think they're so good that they're the only Catholics in the world, even though they've been excommunicated. Right, right. So Dan Brown is actually out with a new book called Origins, which the focus of the book is really, really interesting. And Zach, I know you fell down a slight rabbit hole on this one, so I'll let you explain what the focus of this book is. Yes. So Dan Brown is out with the new book, as you said. This is the author of The Da Vinci Code, mm -hmm. um, his, all these other thrillers that he writes. Uh, and he's somewhat famous in Catholic circles for always getting Catholicism, Catholicism wrong. really wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, but he has this new group of people in the new book called the Palmarian Catholic Church. And fun fact, they actually exist. And so he writes about this creepy sect that exists in Spain where they have their own cathedral and their own members. And they even have their own pope, correct? Yes. They think that they've had about five popes. Uh, they left the official Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, they thought that Paul VI was the last real pope. And okay. so they've declared him a martyr. Unclear why they think he's a martyr, martyr if he just died from natural causes. I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe they think he was murdered. Anyway, there's... This caused me to fall down a deep, <laughs> deep Wikipedia rabbit mm -hmm, hole. Mm -hmm. They've got hovering around a thousand numbers, but there's some question that they're going to die out probably pretty soon mm -hmm. um, because no one's converting to this, um, unsurprisingly. Right, right. Um, and it looks it looks a little Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. But it's going to look much more like a pre-Vatican II church. And so some things are going to look the same, but they've got some... Uh, different beliefs that I think are interesting. And mm -hmm. basically they think they excommunicated John Paul II, which was. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting that you excommunicate an actual Catholic Pope. Right. Well, it's sort of like, oh, well, you excommunicated me. Well, no, I excommunicate you. Which, very <laughs> And funny. they also, I think um, they, the Eucharist, they believe that the Virgin Mary is the real presence in the Eucharist. As well as Christ. But yes, that is a, another funny belief they have. Um, but there are, a lot of there were actually a lot of schismatic groups mm -hmm. um 
in the 20th century in the fallout of Vatican II that all had a sort of have these like small memberships. There are some that have larger memberships, but this is one of the uh, fringe ones that, you know, has about a thousand people and will probably die out soon. Okay. Well, I guess Dan Brown is going to help them get more members in with this new book. Maybe. Da- I don't know. He sent Dan Brown sends a lot of people on his main characters on, you know, detective hunts and he sent me on a Wikipedia one. <laughs> All right, what's next, Olga? Uh, have you seen the latest Bill O'Reilly news? He's uh, he's just so awful. Yeah, so Bill O'Reilly, who is a Catholic, uh, recently said on his web series, um, No Spin News, that he was mad at God over the allegations that he has sexually harassed and assaulted uh, some of his former coworkers. This comes after the New York Times released its latest uh, report that he reached a $32 million settlement with one of his former colleagues. Um, and this is sort of part of a pattern mm-hmm. for him. Um, no word from how God has responded to. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, this is this is so frustrating because he is completely trying to make himself the victim in this situation and not all of the victims who have come forward with these allegations. And this is coming in light of other news that we've been seeing coming out of Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein, James Toback, and Terry Richardson, you know, mm-hmm. other men who w- a lot of women are coming forward with these same kind of allegations. Um, and what's been interesting is like a lot of these things when they happen seem very distant because mm-hmm. they're celebrities and they're right. higher up people. But the sort of social media campaign that's mm-hmm. resulted from it has really brought a lot of this close to home for people, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it was Alyssa Milano who was on Charmed, um, shout out to Charmed, um, who started this me too campaign and just was asking women to if they had been victims of sexual harassment sexual assault to come forward and share your story whether whether it was actually detailing it or just tweeting out me too um and it's been really great to see this people have come forward and it's been this really big moment of solidarity um but what is kind of frustrating is that survivors these women have been coming forward for years like in the case of terry richardson their women had been accusing him of sexual harassment like six years ago and nobody was listening to them you know survivors have been telling their stories you know and i think we need to shift the narrative a little bit and not just focus on like hey women should come forward women should do this and we should start talking about what can men do in these situations you know yeah absolutely what what was it you said we were talking about this earlier that every woman knows someone but yeah it's fascinating every woman knows someone who every woman most likely has been sexually harassed at some point in her life and every woman knows someone who has been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted but if you were to flip the question and ask men do you know anyone who has sexually harassed or sexually assaulted someone most men would say no right and it sort of raises the question you know where (laughs) who's doing all the harassment right 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 um and uh, this is like i don't know it's over i felt overwhelmed like reading all of these stories to the point where like it's easy to feel helpless, but like mm-hmm. w- the starting point for me was, okay, I need to reassess my own place in this, in this culture. Like mm-hmm. how have I aided and abetted this to exist? How right. have I, how do I respond to it? I don't think men have learned how to mm-hmm. either support or respond in ways that are healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so right. that's been challenging for me, which we actually had an article Yeah, we had uh, Ken Homan, who is a contributor at the Jesuit Post, wrote a piece titled, I'm a Jesuit, how should I respond to toxic masculinity and me too? Um, And it was really powerful because he acknowledges a lot of what you just said, Zach. Like, how do I deal, as a man, how do I deal with 
these issues, you know? And I think what's important is the first step is you have to acknowledge your privilege as a man and you have to acknowledge that, yes, even if you don't want to admit it, you have been complicit. If you have been around a guy who has said something like, you know, she shouldn't have dressed that way, you know, then you should call out your friends. And I think the first step is to be like, okay, what have I done? As a man, I don't understand this, but what can I do? And what's in, maybe that's not super clear right now, but the thing that he brings up is he says that I would love to apologize and go back to comfortably occupying my male dominated spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd, I'd love to tweet some catchy statements and feel better about myself, but Hashtag me too is forcing me to sit, to stay, and to pray. It's forcing me to listen, to accompany, and examine my history and my heart. Mm-hmm. And so this is like a real, not that there haven't been chances in the past, mm-hmm. but we look at the moment that's in front of us right now. Mm-hmm. And it's one to do those things that he's talking about right. and really look at how we fit into this. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of my male friends lately um, to not give into that instinct that I think a lot of men have to say, well, not all men, I haven't done that. And it's like, no, I'm not saying that you are a rapist or these awful things, but it is okay for you to be like, how have I engaged in this culture and what can I do? And how can I listen to the people who are telling me to be better? You Mm -hmm. know, always look at where your first instinct is. I think Mm -hmm. Um, if it's one of defense, not healthy, if it's to escalate immediately to anger, then Mm -hmm. not healthy. And so the real challenge then for, um, for us is to to listen and reflect and discern and also be contemplatives in action, right? That's sort of the Jesuit motive is to think about these things, but also act on them. Today, we're excited to welcome the executive director of Network and leader of Nuns on the Bus, Sister Simone Campbell. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sister. Ah, great to be with you. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. So our first question, what is Nuns on the Bus? <laughs> That's everybody's question. It's a good place <laughs> to start. Um, Nuns on the Bus is a project of our organization network, and it started in 2012 when we went on the road to push back against the federal budget that uh, then Congressman Paul Ryan had proposed. And he said that his Catholic faith inspired this budget. And we said that was wrong. This was not, it was a budget that would decimate the low-income communities of our nation and would hurt especially the working poor families. And so we went on the road to advocate against it. After that, we were only on the road two weeks, but it sort of got into people's imaginations. So we've done a each year after that, except for this year, we've done a bus trip on a variety of things, on immigration reform, on trying to bridge the divides in politics. Uh, wait, wait, you, yeah, did, you didn't have one this yeah. year? Pardon? No, we didn't have one this year. No, what? we Why had not? to stay in Washington, D.C. We really need help mending the gaps in politics. Yeah. So we stayed here because so many bad things are happening in Congress that we hmm. couldn't afford to be out of D.C. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind sense. of urgent times. I didn't I didn't realize that um, Paul Ryan was part of the origin story of Nuns on the Bus. So I assume you've met him. And yes, you obviously disagree with his policies. Um, but do you think he's motivated by his Catholic faith or something else? Well, I mean, it's a little hard to look into his heart. He says he is. My only trouble with it is that he's misinformed about his Catholic faith. And the hard part's been is that I've taken him 
various things that Pope Francis has written, and uh, like the Laudato Si, the encyclical mm-hmm. on environment and poverty. I took Joy of the Gospel. Uh, he's oh, I've read it. I've read it. It's like well, <laughs> if you read it, you didn't take it in. So mm. anyway, yeah, it, it's a little frustrating. So the bus part is very um, noticeable when you guys are driving around the country. But what about the nun part? Why why did you become a nun? And what do you think that that brings to your work? Oh, well, I became a nun way before I ever thought of a bus. But um, <laughs> let's see. Um, for me, I was always, uh, as a young person, as a teenager, young adult, I was always about civil rights, and um, uh, I'm getting old, so I can say uh, (laughs) when I was a kid, Dr. King's um, sermons, you know, that got, you know, broadcast on television were really powerful. I saw the kids on TV. I saw the kids in Birmingham standing up for integration of the schools. And so as a young person, I thought, well, if they could stand up, here I am in Southern California I'm not in the South, but I can stand up too. Mm-hmm. And so my community, my I'm a sister of social service, and so my religious community is um, was founded in Budapest, Hungary in 1923 and then in Los Angeles in 1926. But in, in Budapest, our foundress was the first woman in par- the Hungarian parliament. So we've always known that um, there is an intersection of charity and justice. That's pretty cool. And, I didn't. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. What, what was the founder's really, name? Uh, she is Margaret Schlachta. She said that there were these four levels that Sisters of Social Service were supposed to work at, and the bottom level is direct service. The second level is group work, uh, like in a settlement house, that kind of thing. The third level is movement work, things like Move On or the anti-nuclear movement or um, those kinds of things. And then, of course, because she was in the legislature, probably she was she thought legislation was the top, the <laughs> pinnacle. But but what she said was, was that legislation wouldn't be any good unless it's connected to the other three. And direct service would be less effective unless it was connected all the way through up to legislation. And for me, that has always been a big motivating thing to know that we all hold a piece of the process of governance. What would you say to you know a young woman today who looks at what you're doing? You're 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 a trained lawyer, right? Um, yeah. In addition yeah. to being a you know a lobbyist and a sister, and you know someone might look at that and be like, okay, like I can I can be a lobbyist and a lawyer and a civil rights fighter without becoming a nun, like what, what would your case to them be? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, you can go do it. So what's distinctive about, about religious life when it seems so integrated with, you know, just regular political life? <laughs> what I know is faith matters for nourishing our roots, keeping us from being, hateful. I, I mean, in politics right now, people thrive on being hateful and having sharing hate speech. And so for me, faith keeps me anchored in that. Can I give you one example? We would uh, love that. <laughs> uh, today, uh, we, we work together in the interfaith community here in, in DC. And at noon today, I was asked to lead 
um, a quarterly contemplative prayer time. And so I did this contemplative prayer time and asked everybody who came, a small group, but everybody who came is come with a question that you're pondering and then hold it in prayer. And so I took my question, but what happened to my question during the quiet 15 minutes of just quiet contemplative prayer was uh, my question changed from how do we deal with healthcare in this administration to who will weep if we don't? And I realized the need for really for public weeping in order to provide any healing. And so for me, the intersection of my religious life and this work is that you get deeper insights, you get bolder ideas, and it's about the spirit breathing over the waters of chaos and making something out of it. I think that holding the spiritual practices at the heart of who we are is an intense way of living uh, and fidelity in community keeps Do us. Do you live in community? I've always wondered that. Um, I don't currently live with other sisters, but I'll tell you one of the great gifts of the internet <laughs> is that we can have as many fights on the internet as we <laughs> Do when you live in person almost. Um, <laughs> Can you get the same yeah. nourishment that you do in person? Well, no, but here's the thing. The the struggles are nourishing because you keep engaged in um, trying to find the faithful way forward together to articulate mm-hmm. it, to understand it. And that keeps me nourished, going, faithful. And I will say that prayer as a priority in religious life is something that my uh, married colleagues have a harder time with, or my colleagues who have another life form find it surprising. And many people have said they're kind of jealous (laughs) because my life is anything but a quiet life. And it's all about service and engagement I don't know. And then my law partners, when I practiced law for 18 years, my law partners said that there was a qualitative difference with how I were interacted with clients. And I didn't see it, but they saw it. So, Sister Simone, you were at the Vatican for International Women's Day. And uh, recently we spoke to the host of the Catholic Feminist podcast, Claire Swinarski. And one of the questions that we were discussing was, what what does it mean to be a Catholic feminist? So would you describe yourself as one? And if so, where do you focus your attention as a Catholic feminist? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am Catholic and I'm a feminist, so I think that makes me a Catholic feminist. Uh, <laughs> the logic would follow. Uh, yeah, it was my legal training that helped me see that one. But uh, I am deeply pained by the lack of women's leadership in the church. And so one of the reasons that I work in federal politics and not in church settings is because I just don't have patience for the church fight. So I, I think I'm less I'm less in, engaged on the issues within the Catholic Church. I admire people who are able to do it. Like Chris Shank, who started Future Church, is a friend of mine, and I admire Future Church greatly. And What do they, uh, what do, they do? They're working at promoting women's leadership at all levels. And rather than doing the Women's Ordination Conference, who I also 
admire, they're working on women in the diaconate because there's clear biblical mm. references to that. I admire that work greatly, but it's not mine. I'm not patient enough for yeah. it. I, I just... Of course, people laugh at me because I say I work in federal policy. <laughs> I was going to say, just so I understand you, uh, yeah. we find church political fights too <laughs> right. much, but but our, but our Congress, current, but Congress, Congress is okay. Is, <laughs> oh, Congress is more hurly burly, and and I can be, I can, and the the truth of it is, I hate power imbalance, mm-hmm. and so within the church fights, there are too many power imbalances, and I'm not good at those fights. Then I have a tendency to. <laughs> So, so do you think being a nun gives you a, you know, a, an advantage or, a, or some sort of uh, leverage in these, in your, you know, interactions with high profile political figures that you don't have I, in the church? Um, yeah, I think that, I think that's possible. Um, I know that, um, well, I know the fact that I'm a sister matters to Catholic members of Congress. I mean, it matters to Speaker Ryan, it matters to Leader Pelosi in a very different way. It's supportive to her. It's annoying to him. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it Catholic guilt? Is that what you're pointing to? Oh, yeah, it is Catholic guilt. But I think that there's a way, even with non-Catholics, that there's a kind of a moral authority, mm-hmm. an expectation of clarity that goes with the role, which is both gift and curse, because it then means that we have to be sure that we do stay true and not betray that trust. Um, That's never happened before. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) right. Um, But I think it's, that's the expectation. Uh, That's the expectation I have is that I won't betray that trust. And uh, I get trusted with the stories of so many people because of it, that, um, it, they become like this sacred community I carry around inside of me of stories people have told me. Jim Martin, Father Jim Martin said to me oh, a while ago, he was intermu- interviewing me about something. And of course, I'll, I'll tell all these stories. And, and he said, well, you know, that's what Jesus did. And I was <laughs> like, really? Oh, I never thought that. That's kind of cool. <laughs> so Sister Simone, what issue are you more, most concerned about right now? Oh my gosh. Okay. Can I have two? I have two. Of course. <laughs> well, actually three. There's two. Um, the the three issue. issues that <laughs> I am totally frantic about are uh, healthcare that we've been working on, mm-hmm. preserving healthcare for vulnerable people. The second is uh, tax policy. That's probably the policy that we're Listeners will think, oh, my gosh, isn't that boring? No, it's the most important policy for our income and wealth disparity in our nation. And uh, what people are trying to do to give the top 1% this huge tax cut that was going to create a huge deficit. And then they're going to be surprised and say, oh, well, we have to cut all the social service programs because we don't have any money now. So that one just has me totally nuts. <laughs> and Number three. The other, the other issue is immigration, uh, that we willfully refuse as a nation to fix a system that was designed in 1960. Yeah. And if you had, um, you know, anything designed in 1960, you'd think maybe we need to modernize it. But because of exploitation and the political game of blaming others, there 
the Congress is willfully refusing to fix yeah. it. And that is, it's not Christian. Yeah. When you, when you put it that way, I understand why teaching. you don't have time for a road trip this year. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, sister, yeah. it, it's kind of, it's a very overwhelming current political landscape. So how do we discern during these times? Like, how do we select which issue to focus on when it's, everything feels so overwhelming in politics right now? Well, right. Here's the challenge. Um, that's where, for me, meditation becomes really important, and you listen to where you're called, because we can't do everything. And mm-hmm. as long as we, everybody's doing their part, then the whole community can respond to these times. But everybody has to do something. Hmm. So that's what I advocate. Everybody do something. Those are, and as long as we all do it, it'll get done. Those are wise, those are wise words. Sister, this has been great. Uh, we have one final question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, if you could canonize someone, living or dead, <laughs> fictional or non-fictional, uh, Catholic or not, Catholic or not, who would it be, and why? Give us the elevator pitch. Oh, canonize! You know who I think I will pick is somebody you won't know, but <laughs> Margaret Kistler. Margaret Kistler should be canonized because she was a shop steward in Cincinnati. Uh, She lost her job in 2009. When she lost her job, she lost her health care and ended up getting colon cancer and um, dying because of it. But in her um, illness, she still fought for the Affordable Care Act to be fully implemented. She engaged in trying to make sure that the folks from her business that she'd gotten laid off from were okay. When she was suffering, she kept an eye on others. And what's a better definition of a saint than that? St. Margaret. St. Margaret Kistler. (laughs) Pray for us. Amen. Sister, Sister, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Keep up the good fight. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Come join us in D.C. It'll be fun. Or call your member of Congress and your senators, you know, just where you are. Just just random question. Why why is calling the only thing that works, supposedly? Uh, It's the best thing that works because it's actually a human being talking to human being. And up on Capitol Hill, they have the feeling that emails are uh, no longer really about grassroots. They call it AstroTurf. Fake grassroots, so. Uh, but they don't have robocalls yet to Congress, so we know those are real. Okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, well, have a great Alrighty. rest of your day. Thank you. Take care, y'all. Thank right, you. Bye. Bye. And now it's time for some listener feedback. So you may have seen on Twitter that we're interviewing Tommy Tai, who's the author of the Catholic Hipster Handbook. Um, but as we said earlier in the show, we are in the process of moving. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is the time we should break it to you. We're going to be going. We're going to be going dark next week. Yeah, we got to move. Yeah, 
So um, when we come back in a couple of weeks, though, you're going to hear his interview. So Mm -hmm. ahead of that, we thought we'd ask our followers with a Z on Twitter (laughs) if who is the hippest Catholic that they know? Yeah. Who's the coolest Catholic in your life? And we got some really, really good responses. So Trevor wrote in easy at Pontifex, uh, Pope Francis's Twitter handle. Um, And then Tony wrote his grace, Bishop Umbers, and it's not even close. If you don't follow Bishop Umbers, it's kind of amazing because he's this bishop from australia who is a real bishop and a real person and also like really uh fluent in meme culture yeah he's really like he's his meme game is fantastic it's funnier than mine yeah 100 (laughs) percent um and some nerd named mike said definitely not someone who uses z in followers that's who uh whatever mike and then benjamin said that gregory hillis is a contender who i agree yeah very cool agreed agreed um Greg, who's a uh, theologian and father and beer drinker, and bourbon drinker, and... Contributor at America. Yeah, contributor at America. Okay. And by the way, you guys can follow us on Twitter and interact with us at Jesuitical Show. Yes, we love the Twitter. We really do. Also, it's time to ask you guys to leave us an iTunes review. Please. We had a strong surge of them mm-hmm. coming, but they have slowed to a trickle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're still going to shout out the people who have left us reviews. But ahead of we, we've got two weeks off. And so while you're checking your feed and you're sad that we're not there, <laughs> remember the good times. Yeah. Remember the good times and then write about them. Yeah. And then write about that because yeah. we really we really enjoy hearing from you guys. So leave that review and follow us and subscribe. All right, should we do some consolations and desolations? Yes, it's the part of the show where we tell you where we did or didn't find God this week. So what do you have, Zach? So I have a uh, desolation this week, and this is like a weird one to talk about, I guess, a little bit, because uh, I got almost got in a fight over the weekend. Oh boy, what happened? Um, so I was at a party where there was this drunk idiot, mm-hmm. um, just sort of like being creepy uh, and aggressive and... Um, sort of was putting his hands on my girlfriend and I sort of like lost it a little bit Mm -hmm. and, um, immediately escalated it to like pushing him away and like getting in his face. And then, you know, his friend comes over and says like, Hey, don't touch him. And Mm then, um, Amanda, my girlfriend, you know, um, played, stepped in, played peacemaker and everyone walked away. Um, I don't know. I think part of it was just like reading all of these me too stories and then mm-hmm. just like being in a situation where um you know people are being touched and and they're mm-hmm. not asking for it and they're being harassed and talked to mm-hmm. um and i think the desolating part for me was recognizing my own sinfulness my own inadequacy and being able to have a response that wasn't an immediate escalation to uh violence or protector or some other problematic role that i was trying to fulfill right there Mm -hmm. um and fact of the matter was that amanda like pointed out like we were talking about a lot is that that's nothing new right and that's pretty mild compared Mm -hmm. to some things that happen um a lot and Mm -hmm. so that was a really desolating thing for me right right because it's unfortunate you're you're like you said you're hearing about this in the news and then having to see your girlfriend in that position is not at all easy no and so i'm so i'm like trying to i've been thinking i don't know i was really thinking about a a lot uh, for the rest of the weekend and this week about you know what is my role how do i respond to situations Mm -hmm. like that how do i be supportive how do i be a better person Mm -hmm. um so that's what i will continue to be sitting with i think for a while what do you got olga 
So I've got a consolation this week. Um, I mentioned a few episodes ago that I joined this community group. um, And last night I went for the second time. And I've been a little... I was really excited about joining it um, Mm -hmm. when I went to like the social that they had. And then when I went to the first one. Um, Then I got really cynical as like, you know, the news made me cynical. And I was just like, I'm so busy at work. Like, we talk about these things all the time. I don't want to do this after hours. Like, I just want to go Netflix and chill, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but just kind of being in that space, just listening to people struggle with how they balance their f- Christianity with their with working in secular spaces, I was kind of like, wow, I'm really, really privileged to be able to work at a place where, like, I literally see God in my coworkers and I see God in you guys on this podcast, you know, and the editing that I'm doing. Um, And it was kind of consoling to see that, to see that that's like, I really see my faith every single day, you know? And then on the other hand, I also got to experience, like, I was in fellowship with these people, you know? Um, And it's very different from the fellowship. I've mentioned this before. It's very different from the fellowship I get here um, because they are like, these are people in their 40s and their 50s. They have kids and things. Um, So yeah, that, that was a really consoling space to be in. That's awesome. All righty, let's roll these credits. Jesuitical. <clears throat> Jesuitical. Jesuitical. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering provided by Antonio Delaware Bruce. Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. And please, 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 please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Damo Whitney. Also, send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, presents, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Zach Davis for America Media. See you next week.